today on Ag News Daily. The savings come in so many different forms. Uh, we've got a, a gauge right on the screen to know what the droplet size is. June 27th, 2023, Tech Tuesday, episode edition here. Tanner and Delaney ready to bring you some of the latest news headlines. Delaney, did you have a peaceful rest last night? You know what? I didn't actually. You didn't? Well, it certainly wasn't because of severe weather here in Iowa. No, I went to a CrossFit workout class for the first time in quite some time yesterday and I'm quite sore and I didn't sleep super well last night. (laughs) Self-inflicted. That's that's the uh, pains of getting older. We did have uh, a couple of severe weather events that affected tens of millions of people in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic on Monday. Powerful storms swept through a large part of the country and left three people dead, unfortunately. At least three tornadoes touched down in Indiana, killing one person. One tornado struck uh, a home in Martin County and another touchdown in Johnson County. The National Weather Service is stating also that in Arkansas, two people were killed when a tree plunged into a home. More than 300,000 people remain without power yesterday afternoon after storms battered Tennessee, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, and Michigan. So quite a bit of the U.S. was covered And we may still see some potential for severe weather due to warm areas and temperatures continuing to hit the northern portion of the nation. Temperatures in May for the north and northeastern United States were warmer than overall. And the weather company is stating that July could be the same structure. So as you look at the map here, it kind of catches Iowa southern border, goes across uh, the northern portion of Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and swoops up into the northeast for what those look like. The scales are tipped towards a warmer than average summer. In fact, it could be warmer than the last six summers and could potentially stretch to be the warmest in the last 100 and 20 years. So we'll continue to watch the Great Lakes region as they've got some disorganized patterns coming across. But ultimately, we've got scattered chances of rain for the rest of the week, Delaney. Well, Tanner, as we suspected, crop conditions declined again yesterday due to some of the spotty rainfall that we've seen last week and a few weeks prior. Corn conditions fell another five percentage points for the week ending June 25th. Now nationally, just 50% of the corn crop is rated good to excellent, compared to 55% last week and 67% this time last year. As we look at crop progress on the soybean side of things, crop condition ratings were 51% good to excellent as of Sunday, which is down three percentage points from last year. On the winter wheat side, harvest progress is chugging right along. 24% of the crop was harvested as of Sunday, up 9 percentage points from the previous week, but still 9 percentage points behind the five-year average pace. And crop conditions nationwide for winter wheat was rated just 40% good to excellent, which is actually up 2 percentage points from the week prior, but still not great all in all. As we look at lastly here, spring wheat, USDA said, 50% of the spring wheat crop was rated good to excellent as of June 25th, down a percentage point from the week prior. 
with uh, specific notes here in NASA's report that four of the six states followed by NAS show lower ratings on the week with double digit declines in the Dakotas for spring wheat conditions, Tanner. So certainly not seeing um, crop conditions improve, which I think is something we expected to see, but will USDA adjust any sort of acreage or yield numbers on this week's quarterly grain stock and acreage report? Time will only tell. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I, it always catches me off guard this early in the year. The report also said that 4% of corn was already silking, and that's equal to both last year and the five-year average. So summer always seems to sneak away on us and uh, disappear a lot faster than we'd expected. But speaking of NASA, members of Iowa's congressional delegation stated in a press conference and panel discussion that NASA's efforts to enhance ag research can improve food security and reduce volatility in markets. Astronaut Raja Shari says that NASA has been working with ag stakeholders to develop tools and data to help increase production and lower costs. They've got interest in doing things hyperspectrically and use the imagery of food so that way we can analyze and provide data to those who need it. Republican Senator Joni Ernst sold Brownfield News that the data could help lawmakers craft future farm bills. Some of the data may end up at the EPA or as a part of the USDA and many other agencies that could provide information that rolls into legislative proposals. Republican Chuck Grassley also stated that the private sector would probably benefit from NASA's ag developments quicker because 75% of the American economy will probably follow up faster and more efficiently than the government would, but the government would ultimately react to what, react to what the economy is driving. So it's quite interesting here to see that the collaboration is deemed essential when NASA is teaming up with the USDA to put together some innovative technologies for agriculture. NASA recently partnered with the USDA to explore ways to create more climate resilient food systems. And Iowa legislatures are there to continue to provide the path to funding for NASA in the future. Well, Tanner, switching tracks here, back to some crop progress news. We've seen now Tarsfato officially reported in some fields in Iowa and Missouri. After an Iowa State intern interning with Pioneer observed some disease in fields on June 21st. In all, tar spot has been found now in six central Iowa counties, including Powashik, Tama, Marshall, Jasper, Story, and Polk, as well as Holt County in northwest Missouri. It's a very low level of tar spot, according to Iowa State University Extension plant pathologist Allison Robertson during a phone interview with DTN. But here's an interesting little tidbit for you, Tanner. Maybe you already knew this one. I certainly did not. But she said that tar spot can certainly look a lot like bug poop. So before you come (laughs) conclusively that it's tar spot, she said, throw a little water on it first and see if it can get rubbed off. If so, it's bug poop. But if not, you have tar spot. But she said the conditions are certainly right this year to see that again spread across the central Midwestern states. And we're already starting to see it in a couple of different farms across central Iowa. So be on the watch this year as you're scouting your fields because it's the conditions are here for it. Yeah, I think I've seen a couple of discussions on Twitter already uh, about being very vigilant as you take a look there. I've got 
a potential new power source for the United States and the world. Hydrogen formed deep under the ground by a natural process could be maybe the new major source for untapped carbon-free power. And unlike oil or natural gas, the supply is virtually unlimited. So now we've got wildcatters. I hadn't heard that terminology before this article, Delaney that are out drilling for this limitless geological hydrogen. The push to wean the planet off carbon-free fuels and the, tradition, the transition into renewable energy has focused many on wind and solar, but now geologists are stating it could just be buried below the Earth's surface. The oil wildcatters are now looking to drill for hydrogen. As we look at big energy companies such as Shell, BP, Chevron, and others looking to team up with the U.S. Geological Survey and the Colorado School of Mines to study the availability of geological hydrogen. The handful of ambitious startups are already starting the hunt. High Terra and Natural Hydrogen Energy are preparing to drill in Nebraska and Kansas already this summer, and gold hydrogen is searching in Australia. French researchers believe that it exists in old coal mines, as well as in Africa. They're looking to tap into hydrogen that was discovered years ago on a well digging expedition for oil. So now we'll look at what hydrogen can be used to how it can power the nation, but they state here that one trillion tons could power the U.S. or 1 billion could power the U.S. for a full year. And the U.S. potentially has access to 150 trillion. So obviously 150 trillion divided by 1 billion is a very long-term solution to powering the future of our needs. So quite interesting there to see if this could be a new uh, carbon-free way to power our planet forward, Delaney. You know, there were lots of big numbers in there. <laughs> yes, really 150 trillion divided by 100 billion is a long time. We wouldn't have to worry about it. Well, speaking of some other energy related news, we got a big kick, of course, last week from the RFS putting out their next couple of years of blending requirements. But it sounds like USDA Secretary Vilsack is trying to redeem that for rural America as he announced plans yesterday to invest $500 million from the Inflation Reduction Act to increase the availability of domestic biofuels at the pump. Vilsack announced the first 59 infrastructure projects receiving a total of $25 million. And in July, the USDA will accept applications for up to $450 million in higher blend infrastructure incentive program grants that was a mouthful, so that awardees can work to switch things over at the pump. Because I know, as we know, that's a big cost for gasoline retailers. And a lot of times they don't want to pay for that. But some of these grants will help to increase higher blend ethanol and biodiesel availability through funding shared costs of building or retrofitting biofuel infrastructure, including those at the pump. The grants will cover up to 75% or $5 million of total project costs for higher blending fuels, Tanner. So hopefully we see some companies taking advantage of those grants and swapping things over to make it more feasible for biofuels to be used. 
Yeah, it is uh, obviously to see the sustainability of those grants in the future to continue development will be key. I've got a couple of Russia updates and then one more 4th of July type news before I'm done for today. As we look at mid-afternoon in Kiev right now, we still have Russia continuing to defend the negotiations of peace between the Wagner Rebellion and Moscow. Putin said that the security forces during the Kremlin Invitational were key and thanked them for showing responsibility of the fate of the motherland and its future. The Kremlin also rejected a notion that Putin's authority has been jeopardized. The All the charges, as reported yesterday against the Wagner Group, have been dropped. The Russian Federal Security Service said that they are dropping the case against the fighters since they stopped their advancement. They did report Russian pilot casualties that uh, Russian army pilots have confirmed deaths, but no civilians or ground troops were killed. And of course, the Belarusian president, Alexander, is stating that his role in the purported advancement of Wagner's troop was very key in resolving the situation. So he continues to take a very strong position there. Russia also sent missiles into the central Ukrainian region, uh, X-22 missiles, exactly one year after an attack on that same region killed more than 20 people. No casualties are being reported there today. So Delaney, what would be some of the best buys for this year's 4th of July cookout? (laughs) It's still hamburgers. Unfortunately, Wells Fargo's team assembled their 4th of July food report and found that food inflation will still continue to affect the wallets of U.S. US individuals celebrating the holiday. Some of the top areas of growth is the bread products. So right now, the hamburgers processed and cheese have been up 10% compared to last year. Bread and buns have seen a 22% hike. Potato chips are 15% higher than last year. Of course, these are all attributed to different regions. reasons. The uh, bread due to the war in Ukraine, the hamburgers due to the price of beef, the key potato growing areas in Idaho and Dakotas experiencing a drought. However, when you look at condiments, there's only a 9% increase in that area. And of course, we've seen eggs drop as far as their price over the most recent time, seeing a 7% decrease. Now, if you look at dessert, ice cream is up 9% compared to 2022. And cocoa, which we're seeing uh, a little bit of a supply issue there, is up 14% higher. Ultimately, Delaney, it doesn't look like it's going to be any cheaper this year to celebrate the 4th of July than it was last year. Well, I'm sure people will still celebrate, Tanner. Absolutely. But I'm out of news for today. I have just two more quick headlines here. First is trade related, as we've seen finally a good move in positive U.S. trade relationships, this time with India, as India agreed late last week to drop retaliatory tariffs on certain U.S. ag exports, providing some additional market opportunities for American farmers. Previously, there was a 20% import duty on Indian 
uh, that Indian ha- India had on several U.S. agricultural products. And the U.S. Trade Representative's Office on Thursday announced last week that India has officially cut tariffs placed on chickpeas, lentils, almonds, walnuts, and apples, which had been in place for five years in retaliation of U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. So that's a little bit of a throwback there, Tanner. But my final story here is looking at some recent legislation that was introduced in the House for attacking feral swine eradication. Representative Barry Moore of Alabama has introduced H.R. 3984, a bipartisan bicameral feral swine eradication act co-authored by Representative Jasmine Crockett of Texas. This legislation extends the feral swine eradication and control program. As we note, Tanner, that there are approximately 6 million feral hogs across the United States, which cause more than a $1.5 billion in damage each year. And uh, we know a lot of those cross our borders because they certainly don't care that there are borders to be had. But this act will seek to help reduce some of these damages through trapping, removing, and monitoring and assessing the lands on which feral swine frequently reside. So it's expected to sail through legislation as uh, we've seen this in the past. And it's definitely been a top of mind topic for those in the swine industry, Tanner. Yeah, I feel like we're going to keep seeing more and more articles and reports around strategy as far as that goes itself. So Delaney, it doesn't look like we're opening up today. Must be quite a few factors playing into that, but where do markets sit as we record this morning? Yeah, you know, even after yesterday's drop in crop conditions on both corn, soybeans, and wheat, some of the rain forecasts coming up here later this week, I think, have markets a little scared. But as Jim McCormick was sharing yesterday on the podcast, demand is also impacting where markets head from here. This morning, as we head into opening session, July corn traded 13 cents lower in the overnight at 624 and a quarter. D snoo crop corn down 22 and a half cents at 565 and three quarters. July soybeans shed 22 and three quarters cent at 1498. Nov soybeans will open at 1284 and three quarters, down 38 and a quarter cent in the overnight. July hard red winter wheat shed 19 and a half cents at 847. And a quick refresher at where livestock closed yesterday. We saw weakness in the cattle complex as the August live cattle contract shed 17 and a half cents at a buck 7060. August feeder cattle down 27 and a half cents at 233.67. And July lean hawks added $2.12 and a half cents at 93.40. Tanner, we are kicking things over to today's Tech Tuesday interview with Adam Gittens of HTS Ag. Well, listeners, for this Tech Tuesday interview, we have Adam Gittens, the General Manager of HTS Ag, located in Harlan, Iowa, with us this morning. Adam, could you explain to us what HTS Ag is before we get going? Absolutely. HTS Ag provides high-tech solutions for agriculture. So we work in a number of different areas. We work with Ag Leader Technology as one of our primary vendors. We also work with grain management products where we can control the fans automatically on grain bins by monitoring temperature and moisture of the grain and utilizing a weather station. 
And then we've also made a, a pretty big splash into the drone industry with uh, imagery, image stitching, photogrammetry, as well as uh, spray drones and, and some of the information around that. Um, we've got a lot of uh, knowledge and background over a number of years working in a relatively new industry there. So it sounds like HTS Ag covers many different areas of technology within the agriculture industry. And I would like to talk specifically on Ag Leader that you mentioned. Earlier this morning when we were talking, you discussed that you are an Ag Leader Blue Delta dealer. What does that mean and what all does being a Blue Delta dealer entail? Jennifer, we're pretty proud of that Blue Delta dealer status. So as Agleter's website points out, Blue Delta dealers are the most elite precision farming experts. Its employees are intensely trained and backed by the best resources in the industry. Now, what does that mean in practicality? We have uh, training requirements. So all of our staff has been to Agleter and has been through some form of training. Uh, the technicians have some very intense and in-depth training and the rest of the team has been trained very thoroughly on the products so we can place the correct product with the producer and help them understand how it's going to fit in their operation. But the best products are only as good as how well you can run them. And so that's where the, the technician training comes in, because not only do we know how to install it, our technicians are going to train you on how to utilize that technology and get the most out of your investment in that technology, which we feel is a very, very critical part of utilizing the technology in, in any aspect. And so that's one of the big things that we find is that we're, we're able to help not only just with getting the right item figured out, what's gonna fit well in the operation, but then how to use it. And that, that's really a, a piece that is very critical. Most definitely. And within this um, dealership status that you have with Ag Leader, what are all of the technology opportunities that specifically come from Ag Leader that you offer? Ag Leader is the full precision farming solution. So they have uh, some of the best in class displays. We've got auto steer, we've got um, planter controls and monitoring, and that, that's a wide product in and of itself. So we can do electric drives, we can do high speed planters, we can do hydraulic downforce, we can do something as simple as clutches and planner monitoring. Uh, of course, they have their full suite of application products as well as harvest products. And uh, backing up to that application products uh, suite, if you will, one of the, the newest items out from AgLeader that we're really excited about this summer is the Right Spot system. So, Right Spot, what specifically is that? Right spot is uh, technology that makes spraying precisely an easier job in a, in a nutshell. You know, whether it's your uh, first timer sitting in the cab of the sprayer or you're a seasoned professional, we've got the ability to make the operator better at what they do utilizing that technology. Um, without diving too deeply into the and nerding out on the tech side of it here, uh, what it does is we have individual nozzle control on that sprayer. So instead of shutting off a 10 or 15 foot wide section, we are now shutting off every single nozzle on the sprayer individually, which that in, in and of itself is a very valuable tool. We, we're eliminating the overlap, we're saving some product, but that's just a, touching the tip of the iceberg, if you will, of what this product can do for growers. 
So not only do we have that uh, individual nozzle control, we have turn compensation built in. If you think about how wide these sprayers have gotten, and I use the example of if you stretch your arm straight out to the sides, put one hand on top of a fence post and walk around that, how far did your one hand travel compared to your other hand? And a sprayer is just an exaggerated version of that. So think about as we turn a corner with a sprayer that's 90 or 100 or 120 foot wide, how much faster one side of that sprayer is traveling versus the other. We're not getting the same rate on both sides of the sprayer unless we do something about that. And with individual nozzle control, we have the ability to do something about it now. So we use the technology called uh, pulse width modulation, PWM valves on every nozzle. And that PWM, if you think about flipping a light switch on and off really fast, the faster you flip the switch, the brighter the room will seem, the slower you flip the switch, the darker it will seem because it's just turning on for short bits. So this technology does a couple of things. It allows us to control the rate at every nozzle, but then it also maintains pattern because we're not controlling it by changing the pressure. So we maintain the perfect pattern on the nozzle. We maintain the appropriate droplet size of spray coming out of that nozzle, ultimately giving us a really good coverage and, and really good uh, results from that application because we're getting done what we actually intended to have done in that part of the field. Even if we have a curve that we're going around, even if we speed up or slow down or whatever that may be, we're maintaining pattern, we're maintaining pressure, and we're still getting the correct rate applied on it. So that technology really does some great things for the operator. That's what it sounds like from all of that information that you gave, you put into perspective when you mentioned putting your arm on a post and going in a circle around it, that really put into perspective, I think, um, how much help that this can be and just exactly what a sprayer does and covers for me, at least in my mind. And diving in with this technology even more that you mentioned, how can producers decide if it's the right fit for their operation to adopt it or not? Well, the short answer there, Jennifer, if you have a sprayer, this is the right fit. It's the right spot. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, really, though, the savings come in so many different forms. Uh, we've got a, a gauge right on the screen to know what the droplet size is. Uh, an inconsistent droplet size can be very costly. If you have a little bit of wind and too fine of a droplet size, we're going to be dealing with drift. We just created a bigger issue now because maybe we had an impact on the neighbor's crop that was unintended. Um, maybe we have too big of droplet size and we're not maintaining good coverage of what we're trying to get applied out there. And so just simple uh, things like droplet size and even speed. Think about uh, your kitchen faucet. When you turn that on a very low flow, uh, you know, if you were to actually be able to see the individual droplets coming out, they would be larger droplets. When you increase the pressure and turn that, that faucet all the way on, you know, you're, you're dealing with almost a mist or a really fine pressure. And so those same things happen, even when all other things are perfect, really to get the right pressure and the right speed on any sprayer, or the right pressure and the right droplet size, you have to maintain a pretty tight window of speed. What this does, not only do we have the ability to slow that sprayer down and still maintain that droplet size or maintain the proper pattern, we can also speed up. So we gain some real efficiency there. When you get on that nice big bottom field and you've got the ability to, to kick it up just a little bit, if you do that with a traditional sprayer, 
your pressure is going to increase to be able to maintain the rate that you're putting down. Well, when you increase pressure, we decrease droplet size. And now we, we've potentially decreased the effectiveness of that spray application. Or like we mentioned before, we've created a bigger problem with some potential drift with some of the products that are out there. So I, I would... I would tell you there's probably a fit for almost every sprayer out there. And really what that boils down to is what is your need? And, and our technology advisors are really good at helping sit down with growers, ask some questions, understand what their machines are, understand what their farm operation are, and help navigate through that so that we can maintain or match up the, the correct product with the, uh, the grower's operation. And we feel that's an important thing to do. Definitely. And with all of this information, I'm sure listeners are going to want to continue to learn more and just have questions because of how interesting and how much information you have given here. Where can they go to continue to learn more about Right Spot or just in general HTS Ag? Jennifer, we've got a, a wide uh, array of ways to get in touch with us. Of course, we're on all the social media platforms. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, um, you name it, YouTube, and all of those platforms. You can find us at HTS Ag. You, of course, can find us on the internet. Our website is www.htsag.com, or you can simply give us a call, 800-741-3305. We would be more than happy to sit down and understand what your operation is, what your needs are, and figure out how we can implement the best technology to drive a really good return on that investment. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Adam. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Jennifer. Have a great day. Well, we appreciate Adam for hanging out with us again. He's always got a wealth of knowledge, which is a lot of fun to dive into. Listeners, if you've got cool people like Adam for us to talk to, make sure you reach out on social media and let us know. But Delaney, for today, what do you say? Should let the listeners go. 